2: check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium, and of course my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Today, in honor of February being Black History Month, I am doing a giveaway of a beautiful collection by Zora Neale Hurston called You Don't Know Us, Negroes and Other Essays. Introduction and edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Genevieve West. So if you haven't heard about this new re-release of Zora Neale Hurston's amazing, beautiful essays, you now have a chance to get your own copy of this absolutely gorgeous book that I have sitting next to me right now to enter, email info at zibbyowens.com. And in the subject, just say entry or giveaway. And I will take all of the emails from all the people who entered the giveaway and randomly pick one winner to send this to. So you have until the end, let's give it till February 7th. So anybody who's listening between February 1st and February 7th, please enter the giveaway by emailing info at zibbyowens.com. And in the subject, just put giveaway and I will randomly pick one. So again, that's for the Zora Neale Hurston giveaway. Okay, so today's interview is with Brendan Slocum who wrote my new favorite book called The Violin Conspiracy. Brendan Nicholas Slocum was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and holds a degree in music education with concentrations in violin and viola from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. For more than 20 years, he has been a public and private school music educator and has performed with orchestras throughout Northern Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, DC. He's currently working on his second novel. Again, it's called The Violin Conspiracy, and you'll see in my conversation with Brendan, just how excited I am about it. Also, if you would like to watch us live, I am doing a Politics and Prose event with Brendan on Wednesday, February 9th. Again, that's Wednesday, February 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern time at Politics and Prose. It'll be over Zoom, so just go to the Politics and Prose website and sign up. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books to discuss the Violin Conspiracy, which is like my new favorite book. It's so good. Oh my gosh. Bravo.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you.
2: It's just, I know I've already raved about this on Instagram, but it's, it's just so good. You're, it's so, (laughs) it's so good. And I love Ray. I love the whole story. I feel like I've learned so much about music uh, and the the whole music symphony world. I want to, like, go to a symphony now. (laughs) I never saw any of this coming. The whole thing, brilliant. Just brilliant.
3: Loved it. That is overwhelming praise, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
2: Okay, so back up. Why don't you tell listeners what The Violin Conspiracy is about and what inspired you to write it?
3: Okay, I got this. I got this. (laughs) Violin Conspiracy is the story of Ray, who is a young, poor kid growing up in rural North Carolina, who discovers that his old family fiddle is actually a priceless Stradivarius violin. And this discovery catapults him into superstardom in the world of classical music. And right before the world's most prestigious classical music competition, the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow, his violin is stolen and he will do any and everything he can to get it back. Who took it? Will he get it back? Will he win the competition? Will he perform in the competition? You got to read it to find out. Wow. (laughs) So exciting.
2: And this comes from your own experience in part. Talk about your own relationship to the music world and all of that.
3: Well, I am a classical violinist by trade. I started when I was nine years old through a public school music program. So music is obviously very important to me. It, i I say this and I don't mean it as a cliche but music really did save my life I was you know the neighborhoods that I grew up in and the kids that I would play with now. A lot of them are in prison, or have been to prison, or are unfortunately deceased because of activities that you know, not doing good stuff. And the world of music actually took me away from a lot of that because I would have probably been right there with them had it not been for you know orchestra rehearsals or violin, you know, having to practice or having to go to a concert or even a trip that we were taking because of music. You know, it took me around the world. First time I ever went to New York was the first, was with an orchestra. I, I never. Would would have had that opportunity. I spent several summers in Asia. Never thought I would go because of my music, and it's just been a lifesaver. You know, and growing up in that environment and having someone who believed that I had something that was worth cultivating—it just, I you mean, know, it literally changed my life. And had a slew of teachers who just encouraged me and pushed me and would not let me quit. And just, you know, and this is the result. I'm here. I'm still here. <laughs>
2: so who is your Miss Janice?
3: My Janice Stevens is Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang. She's a teacher at Scripps College in California right now. And she is the woman who not only taught me how to play the violin, but she taught me how to teach and I will be forever indebted to her to that and you know for that. And she just, you know, every opportunity I get to talk about her to my students, I do. And they I feel like they know her better just as well as I do because I've talked about her so much. And everything I do, I try to make it a reflection on her because I'm so I'm so grateful to her for what she did for me.
2: Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. <laughs> I know I thought one of the most poignant moments in the book was when Ray was a master class teacher and mm. another young black boy who was rent, had to rent the guitar, violin just as he had came in and the other people were so rude and awful. And he was like, you keep it up. Like, here's what you have to do. And like yeah. that you you can see right there, like your own love of teaching <laughs> and how you, right. Because then I just wanted Ray to keep teaching more people <laughs> and like who could Ray <laughs> teach and what would happen then? So yeah.
3: That that is actually that was that was a real experience I had. You know, a kid came in, and I the other judges had kind of written him off, and I was like, you know, well let's let's give him a chance. And I'm going to digress just for a moment. That giving people a chance without any you know preconceived notions that to me is so important, and that's something that I think we're really really lacking nowadays. And I always try my best. I don't I. Do the best I can not to judge anyone based on appearance. I will judge you based on you know how we interact. You know, you come in with a jacked up, beat up violin. That doesn't mean anything. It just means that you have a beat up violin. Doesn't know you know. It, it doesn't tell. Me, how passionate you are about what it is you do, or how much you really want to pursue this. So, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. This kid came in with a tape recorder. He really did. He came in and he played My Heart Will Go On. And I just sat back and I just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I'm like, his mom was there. His mom was, she was almost in tears because he played so beautifully. He played so beautifully. And I just, I was like, dude, don't ever stop. I said, you You were better than me when I was your age. Do not stop. It is fantastic. And I can tell you love it. Just keep it up.
2: What happened to that kid? Do you know?
3: I have not been able to catch up with him, but I'm hoping <laughs> that those, those words of encouragement stuck with him. I hope so. I hope it did. Uh,
2: well, maybe he'll be in the next... Ray or you, or
3: maybe that next to me. That's not too bad.
2: Did you have these experiences with the police yourself, or was this more like a cultural? Okay, well, you're
3: <laughs> okay. All right. You buckled up. You ready? Okay, here we I'm goes. ready. I'm ready. <laughs> the Baton Rouge thing, and I will say, I the Baton Rouge thing is a little bit modified. I never went to jail, but I did get stopped by the cops in Baton Rouge, and I was terrified. I had to I was with a friend we were growing we were driving cross country in 2000 and we were in Baton Rouge just taking that southern route right before New Orleans and it was it was a Sunday there's nobody out and you know this was pre-GPS so it's like okay I think the hotel is that way and I'm in the right lane and I needed to turn left he was like yeah I think it's that way got foot on my signal there's no one else on the road I turn Woo, lights and sirens. I like, what is going on? It's like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. My friend was like, what are you talking about? I was like, just here it goes. So I pull over into a closed convenience store, one that had light, and the officer is on his bullhorn shouting instructions to the driver. I am terrified. I have to get out with my hands up, reach into my back pocket, very slowly, put my wallet on the ground, get on my knees, face down, you know, he had his gun drawn, and it was it was terrifying. And I said, I will never return to the city of Baton Rouge as long as I live, ever, because of that experience. It was it was terrifying, and that's all I'd done fact. was make a left turn from the wrong lane. With that's all I did. But I'm sure he thought he was doing his
2: job. I love that this book now has become like the press conference that regates, <laughs> right? Like this is your way of being like, I'm not going to Baton Rouge again. Thank you that's very it. much. You that's know, exactly just, it. Oh, my gosh. Well, that scene and then the subsequent scene, too. I mean, in was it in Boston? Wasn't it in Boston? Boston yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: That's actually one of my favorite chapters of the book.
2: It's a great chapter. <laughs> oh, my God. That was quite a scene. And the way you painted the Marxes. Oh, my gosh. And even how she changed her accent around the police. And you're like, Ray almost loses it. And then he's yeah. in trouble. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Crazy. Well, when did you learn to write like this? I mean, this is like, was this just a gift? You just were born, like you love to write or you didn't love, like when did this whole writing piece, because obviously you're gifted in violin and teaching and all that, but like, this is really amazing. So you must've had some practice. I can't, I mean, I hope you've had practice. Otherwise you're putting so many writers to shame if you just like crank this out as, as your first attempt. So tell me about the writing.
3: I have actually had a lot of practice. I, I started, I remember in high school, my my English teacher, Evelyn Farr, God rest her soul. I had, I was fortunate enough to have her for 11th grade English and 12th grade English. And, you know, the writing assignments that we would do, yeah, okay, you know, you write. And I would never get my papers back and I never understood why. And one day I looked up on the bulletin board, they're all up on the bulletin board. I'm kind of like, okay, well, she thinks that this is good. I never paid too much attention to it. And I'm in a band and we needed songs to do. We were, we'd done every cover imaginable. So we needed original songs. And none of the other guys were like, yeah, I'm not doing this. Okay, well, I'll try writing a couple of songs. First few were terrible, of course. They all rhymed and everything was awful. And we <laughs> thought we were just, hey, we're it. We got, this, got some good songs, whatever. So my writing evolved a little bit from the songwriting, and that's been maybe 20 years now. And I... Took a stab at writing a manuscript for a science fiction novel. I love science fiction. I, I'm I love mystery and I love science fiction. And I wrote this probably in 2007. And it I, I look back at it now and it is embarrassing. It is horrible. It is the story is great, but it's just I mean it's all over the place. And I got some really good advice. Some good advice I got was to write what you know and write from the heart. Honestly, it's like okay, I can do that. And being a teacher, I was able to manipulate words to make anyone understand. Like I'm a specifically, I'm a music, music music person, so all these musical terms they make perfect sense to me. And like, huh? So I asked people as I was writing, "Does this make sense to you?" I am completely clueless. I don't know what this is. So I would go back and modify. It's like, well, how about this? Oh, well, that makes sense. So that's I, I, I tried to tailor my writing to an audience that didn't know anything about what it is that I was talking about. I'm the expert. These people who are reading are the novices and I want to bring them up to the level of expert with with the writing that I did. And I just, you know, I tried to manipulate it to where everyone could understand everything that was going on. And it all from the heart.
2: Wow. So then how long were you working on this particular one? You weren't working on this since the science fiction novel, right? Oh I my mean, gosh,
3: no, no. I almost okay. quit after that science fiction. Oh, it's terrible. I ever think about it, I just want to cringe.
2: Most people's <laughs> first novels are supposed to be terrible. I feel like people think because you spend so long writing a novel and you did it, that it's going to be good. But chances are it's not going to be good. And that's, that's the way it's supposed to be.
3: Well, I'm glad I am adhering to that principle because it was terrible. It was terrible. And I I might go back and rewrite that one at some point. (laughs) It really is a good story. But this one, you know, it's funny, the summer of 2020, you know, everybody was stuck at home and we were all just kind of, you know, twilling our thumbs and wondering what we could do. And I started writing. I saw an advertisement for, you know, selling books in the age of COVID. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I should give this another, I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm sitting here gaining 15, 20 pounds and I'll go and exercise and then I'll come back and write. And, and I submitted and my agent was like, yeah, this isn't great, but you have a good voice. You should try writing something that you know. And I was like, okay, music. I know about music. And I remember telling a friend and he reminded me of this, a college friend, my life up to that point, it had just, I thought it was interesting. And he said, you know, Brendan, you should write a book. I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. So I thought about that. It's like, you know, maybe my story would be interesting and I could kind of, you know, zhuzh it up a little bit. We'll see. And Violent Conspiracy was written in two and a half months.
2: Oh my gosh.
3: Yeah. It's all I had to do during the summer was write. So I wrote every day.
2: Wow. I'm so impressed. Now (laughs) I'm even
3: more impressed. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Did you know all the twists and turns
3: before you all. started? No. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I was I was writing it like half of it was the story of my life. The other half was, I'm gonna write this like a movie. What would I like to see? I would love to see this or I would love to see this. Oh, I need a twist. Oh, this is gonna be great. Oh no, I can't do that. Oh yeah, I'll do that. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun to do. It was a lot of fun, it really was.
2: Wow. And you sold it as a two-book deal. So what's the next yeah.
3: one? The next book is called The Composer's Last Score, and it's a music-related book, but it's not what you think. It's a story, well, I can just give a little bit of a detail because it's being reviewed right now. It's about a woman living with autism back in the early 1920s, and no one really knew what autism was and didn't really know if she had autism, but she is a musical genius and she can do things and... You know, someone maybe takes advantage of her skills and, you know, maybe some music was written and we don't really know who did it. Was it her or was it the person who is taking a liking to her? We don't know. And what happens, you know, that was in the past. And then what happens in the present when the descendants of this musician who is just an amazing person, everyone across the world knows his name, They find out, well, maybe he didn't write everything. Ooh, that could put their whole corporation in jeopardy. Mm, Have to see what happens.
2: Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I will read anything you write from now
3: on, pretty much. (laughs) I love it. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Wait, going back to this book for two seconds. Did you, and not to keep delving into your life, but- Oh, please. Did you have, like, the relationship between Ray and his grandmother is so special and wonderful. And she was just- I mean, I fell in love with her, too, and her encouragement for Ray to just keep being that sweet boy and to work twice as hard and all of that was just so poignant and moving. Was that based on your relationship or is that fictitious?
3: It is a true relationship. My grandma, Nora, was the absolute sweetest person on the face of the earth. And I mean, I, I think there's a line in the book that you have to forgive me. I read this book probably two dozen times, but it's been a while since I've read it. And I think there was a line I wrote that her voice was so sweet, you could get diabetes just listening to her. Yes,
2: I read that. Yes.
3: <laughs> it is the honest truth. You know, As I was writing her, I, I could hear her speaking to me. I could hear you know me asking her questions and her saying this to me. And she was the sweetest woman alive. And I remember specifically one time I was really mad about something and she just sat me down and didn't yell, didn't scream. She just, just so sweetly said to me, I need for you to know that what you're doing, you're doing the right thing and you're doing it the right way. Just know that. I need for you to know that. And I just, whoa, okay. All right, grandma. Okay, sure. All right, I'm better now. Thank you. That was my grandma. Oh,
2: wow. Well, if this is really her on the page, you're so lucky. And she seems like just such an amazing woman. Absolutely. And support. And oh my gosh, what a person. The question I had when I was reading this is, she seemed so amazing. How could the mom character then have turned out the way she did?
3: <laughs> well, okay. I, I uh, first let me be very, very clear. This is this not, is not your my mom. actual. Okay. Mom. I know, I know. I, I, I said <laughs> the
2: mom character. I said the mom character. I didn't say your mom. <laughs>
3: Now there there are elements of truth that that go back to I mean, I think it's with anybody's parents, you know, they don't quite understand what it is you're doing and you know, whatever. But that my mom was no, she was nowhere near like like this mom character, but you know, it, it, it just, everyone has their own things going on and their own quirks and their own personalities. And Grandma Nora had several children and, you know, some of them turned out to be this way. Some don't turn out to be this way. Mom character just happened to be that way. She just didn't get it. She just didn't get Ray, you know, and, and that's okay. That's totally okay.
2: Well, I wouldn't say the stuff that went on with the family was totally okay. I mean, I thought it was pretty terrible. And Thurston and the girlfriend and all of them, you know, at least there was one and ally. But aside from that, I just felt, I just could not believe Ray, what, you know, such a great boy was continually sort of not abandoned, but betrayed really by yeah. all the people who were supposed to support him.
3: Yeah. That, and yet he kept, was...
2: kept picking himself back up and, and yeah. going back and doing his thing. It's you know.
3: that that was that was the whole point. It's just perseverance, perseverance, try. You do it because you love it. There are going to be obstacles, and you've got to learn how to face them because they're going to, they're going to confront you, and you've got to learn how to deal with it. And I really wanted to push that point home for everyone. You know, you are going to face obstacles. It is going to seem like it's impossible, but you've got to keep going. Your perseverance is going to get you through. And, you know, I, I think it showed in the story
2: Wow. I loved also the inside glance into what it's like to be a traveling musician at this level. And there was one line, I think, when you wrote about... The indignities, almost, of traveling and how you, <laughs> ha, like, how you were supposed to stay fit when you're like traveling all the time and eating all this terrible food, and you know it's not such a luxury to be packing up and on the road yeah. again. And you know, I, I, I hadn't even thought, I, I, I just wasn't as familiar with this world and what the demands would be like. Yeah. So I found that very interesting.
3: It, it's pretty demanding, and and you really have to love it to to put yourself through, you know, everything that you do. But you get on stage and you do what you've been working so hard to do and the people react to it the way that you want them to. And it's all worthwhile.
2: Wow. Amazing. So what advice would you have for somebody who wanted to write a book aside from just perseverance, obviously, and, Mm. you know, not worrying about the first draft, maybe (laughs) sticking to it, all that good stuff. Like what else would you say? You're, you know, if you were teaching writing instead of violin,
3: Well, definitely don't worry about that first draft. Just go ahead and write it and get it out of the way and be done with it. Definitely write what you know from the heart. If it's not honest, if you don't believe it, then no one else will. How can you expect anyone else to? You have to write what you know, what you believe, what you love, what you know, what you believe, what you love. You you, you do that, you can't go wrong.
2: Oh my gosh. I love it. So no outline, no nothing. Oh, well,
3: you know, you can do the outline, but you know, my outline, I tell you my outline changed probably uh, two dozen times it changed. And I was just like, well, if I'm really being true and honest to myself, I've got to do it this way. You know, there were times where I would have fights with, with my, my agent. Oh, you can't write that. No, that's no, no. Things like that don't happen. I'm like, dude, they really do. This happened. I mean, it was a fight, you know, you have to stick to what, what it is that you believe in. And and I did, you know, the first couple of times I gave in, I was like, well, okay, I'll take your advice on this. But there were times where things would, I would write things and, and I knew for a fact, this is what happened. This is the way that it happened. This is the way that it happens regularly. This is my perspective and it's valid because it happens And just because it's not your perspective does not mean that it's not true or it's not valid. So I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to really fight for this to stay in the book. And I did, and I think it was a good result. So definitely do what you love, write what you love, write what you know, be honest.
2: And one thing that you stress sort of with the story itself and then the note at the end and everything is the importance of bringing more people of color into this world of music. And especially at the highest echelons, I think you said at one point there was like 1.8% or something like that of all symphony musicians were black, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. I I had no idea. That's how can we fix that? What can, how can, what can we do about it?
3: Wow. Okay. Let me see. I'm glad I'm sitting down for that one. I I actually had to, Go back and 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 uh, redo the stats on that because I thought it was a little higher. My initial numbers were like two point seven, and then I did some more research and I found that it was quite a bit less than that. So it all starts with I think it really starts with perception. You know, this is not music, classical music. You know, violin, strings, whatever. It's not just for a certain group of people. You don't have to be rich in an affluent neighborhood or have, you know, parents who are CEOs in order to play the violin and to love it and to be good at it. You don't have to. All you need is the desire. And if you want it badly enough, it will happen. And there are so many people that look like me who are capable, who just have not been given the opportunity. And, and, you know, unfortunately, some of us have given up. Some of us are still fighting. And I think as long as Books like this come out and stories like this come out. That's one reason I really wanted to do this, just to raise awareness. And I'm hoping that that has happened and will continue to happen if people are, people know that this is a thing. Okay. Well, wow. there are not very many black people. Why is that? Then the question gets asked and then we can come up with answers from there. Once the question is asked, but you know, who would think to even ask the question, you would just look at a symphony and, and see a sea of faces. None of them that look like mine and it would totally be fine. But for people like me, I'm like, wow, that's kind of messed up because I can do that. Why am I not up there? Why are other people who look like me not up there? So I think a big part of it is just to ask the question first and to raise awareness. And that's one thing that I'm really hoping this book will do. And, you know, we can start with programs and getting kids in early. We can go to these places that don't have music programs and and just start them, just seeing a violin. I'd never seen a violin before. I don't think I'd ever heard one, to be honest. And when I saw this lady, Susan Ellington, God rest her soul, when I saw her come in with a violin, wow, that's pretty cool. Oh, okay. I want to do that. it changed my life.
2: Wow. I wonder if there's some sort of program to be set up for the kids who have shown even a slight interest and yet have to rent the violins like that also. Yeah. When Ray almost had to give his back and like, Mm -hmm. maybe there's some way to sort sponsor a violinist or sponsor musicians or.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many opportunities that I'm looking into and, and, and thinking about starting and, and, and working with people on, you know, these programs, they, they, I, I say it. I don't say this lightly they are life changing they will change they will save lives music really does save people's lives i am a living example of it a lot of my friends who are musicians now you know we we would have there's there's no telling what we would have been doing, but I'm sure it would not have been good if it weren't for our music programs. And I am a staunch advocate for it. Whenever I go and do a conducting gig or like do an all-state orchestra or a county orchestra or whatever, I always tell them how important it is to keep these programs going and encourage your kids. And you all are here at the concert listening to your kids. And that is tremendous. You have no idea the impact that that will have, not only on them, but on the program write your principles, write the superintendents, don't email, don't call, write them a letter, let them know how important it is to you. Let them know that you want this to continue and to grow. Wow.
2: Last thing in Ray says at the end about the violin, that it's not the necessarily the, the form of a Stradivarius that makes it so unique it, that he believes that Stradivarius put some sort of spirit into each of these violins that they're almost like living, breathing things. Mm-hmm. Just tell me a little bit about that, because that <laughs> I lo- that really hit home
3: for Ray in particular with his his Stradivarius. I, I I wanted to convey the feeling that it was truly a part of him and a part of his heritage and his his great grandfather, his great great grandfather, excuse me, Papa Leon Marks. He just, I mean, I I believe that his spirit embodied the instrument because of everything that he had to go through when you read the chapter with Nora's letter.
2: Oh my gosh. (laughs) To be honest, the first time I was like, I started reading it. I was like, I don't even know if I can keep reading this after the hand. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, it's so important, obviously, to know yeah. and to read and to remember and to acknowledge and all of that.
3: And, and believe it or not, I actually toned that down. I toned oh it my down gosh. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I toned it down a lot. I was just like, whoa, that was, was almost too much for me. I was like, oh, okay, I got to bring this back in a little bit. But where was I going? But
2: didn't you, back? wait, didn't you write the letter? You wrote it first? I did. You mean you wrote it in too extreme. You didn't actually find this letter, right?
3: Oh, no, 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 no. I wrote right. that. I
2: you did. wrote it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You're saying. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I mean, when I toned it down, like, like there were so much more graphic detail going on that I actually felt, well, my, my, my agent, when he looked at it, he's like, this is heavy. Like, yeah. yeah, it is, but it's true. Yeah. Wow. That is. Wow. So. Yeah, I toned it down just a bit. And I was going somewhere with that. Yes, Leon's spirit was in the violin because of everything that he had to endure. And, you know, as a people, Black people in general, we've had to endure a lot over the centuries. And, you know, we've just got this, this, you know, this perseverance within us. And I truly believed in the story that Leon's spirit was was part of the violin and passing that down to his... Daughter and his granddaughter, and then finally to his great great grandson. You know, it really was a part of him. And I feel personally you know, your instrument, it really is personal. You can have a row of 15, 20 violins and you would know exactly which one that you want to play. They would all be, you know, priceless instruments, but there's that one that calls out to you. And as a musician, it might sound a little bit lame, but you know, it really is a part of you. My violin that I play on now, you know, if if it were missing or if it were stolen or whatever, it would be a part of me that was gone. It's just, I mean, you practice on this thing for hours and hours and hours and hours and it becomes a part of you and it just it lives with you and i tried to you know convey that in the story and, and Ray's violin he gets it ray totally gets that the violin is a part of him and a part of his heritage and a part of his family and part of the people that have all come for him he totally gets it
2: wow amazing amazing i was going to say something else and now i lost it but that's okay i'm sorry i'm just no, rambling it's my fault no 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 anyway I, I like never do that. Lose my train of thought. <laughs> anyway, I, I got so caught up in it. Well, anyway, I I think this book, oh, I know what I was going to say. What I was All going right. to say is that if you haven't planned to do any sort of events or if you haven't met Jacqueline Woodson, she has a new children's book that I'm about to interview her for, I think tomorrow or this week or something, about sort of the power, particularly back in the day in slavery of of the mind to sort of take you out of mm-hmm. your current thing and the power of perseverance. And anyway, I feel like you two would have an interesting conversation. So someone should moderate that. So just put I it on, would. put it on the docket, get in touch or, you know, I can pick up your
3: Wilson, uh, Woodson, Woodson. Jacqueline Woodson. Uh, See, I wrote it down.
2: I can say, I, I can put your, I'm put your publicist in touch. Or something, but that I feel like you fantastic. two need to you need to do an event together because I would awesome. love to watch that conversation happen. So
3: <laughs> I want to watch this conversation. This is so awesome! I can't believe I'm talking to you. This is great. Oh, stop! <laughs> no, really.
2: Oh, wow. Okay, Brendan, thank you. This has been amazing. I, you know, I'm like almost embarrassed by my gushing here, but oh, um, <laughs> I really your book is very special, and I really hope that I get to watch it just like fly up the charts and. It's just going to touch a lot of people's hearts and help people's lives. It's going to be great. I'm so excited about it.
3: Just hearing you say that—that's you know—that's plenty. If it does nothing, that's okay. Just hearing that someone liked it and got something from it—that's plenty for me. And thank you so much for your kind words.
2: You're so welcome. Okay, keep writing. I want to read your next book.
3: <laughs> okay, <laughs> wait, right. wait. for the third one. That's going to be oh oh yeah. Can't wait. Oh, oh. Oh, okay.
2: God. All right. I'm in. <laughs> Contain
3: myself. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Thank you so much. Day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.